This episode is sponsored by Sneaker Creatures. Sneaker Creatures is your one-stop shop for all of your sneaker needs, and man, do they have a big selection of shoes. If you're looking for Nikes or Jordans, those are super hot right now, and they have them at such incredible prices. If you're looking to gift Nikes or Jordans this year, then really, really check out SneakerCreatures.com. You could use my promo code NickLugo, I repeat, N-I-C-K-L-U-G-O at checkout and get a 10% discount on your purchase. Any shoe in the store, you will get a discount. Check it out, SneakerCreatures.com. I repeat, SneakerCreatures.com. Check out the link in the description below. It will be there. And now, on with the show. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Nick Lugo Show, where I study the tactics, practices, and principles of some of my favorite achievers. Today, I bring on to you an absolute treat who goes by the name of Ben Ahrens, and really, he's been able to really change his life and change people's lives through the power of neuroplasticity. This man really, well, he suffered from Lyme disease from the age of 25. He was a semi-professional surfer who, well, had his career ahead of him and stayed bedridden for three years as a result of Lyme disease. He's been able to circumvent uh, traditional medicine, circumvent the problems and the pills and all the things that come with it, and really figure out how to do it independently and how to do it, well, himself. Healing himself 100% from his injury and really being a perfectly healthy guy now. Now he has started the company ReOrigin, which provides independent, science-based, self-directed neuroplasticity programs and technologies for a wide range of uh, debilitating conditions. Today, Ben comes on the Nick Lugo Show to share his story, how he healed himself, and changed his brain. It starts with the chronic anxiety that so typically accompanies chronic illness and perpetuates illness itself. He talks about how fighting the pain is not really the right, the right way of thinking about it. Fighting the illness, maybe we should work to, let's say, integrate the illness or work with it instead of working against it. So there's so much wisdom packed in here, so much knowledge, so much science. And, well, if you're struggling with a chronic illness, a, de- a debilitating illness, well, I really hope that this provides a lot of value to you. And I hope that you check out ReOrigin, his company. Really, really incredible. It's all in the description below. Make sure to check out the, disp- the sponsors in this description below and make sure to enjoy this episode of the nick lugo show with ben Ahrens. so ben Ahrens, tell me your story tell me how you got here and tell me how you got into well the business you're in today yeah sure so glad to be on nick so um you know as i mentioned to you just prior to starting i was got an early start in um, health and fitness and was just fascinated by the concept of how the human being and the human body could change and um I ended up making that my profession, started off early in college as a corrective exercise specialist and athletic trainer, went to a, a school, uh, Lafayette College, which is Division One football uh, school. So, you know, I had the chance to work with some good athletes there as well um, and just work on, yeah, my own um, health and fitness as well. I was also really into surfing, still am. And for a time after college, uh, spent a good amount of time traveling the world and, and surfing and, and competing in some friendly competitions. And in my mid-20s, things really took a turn for me where I ended up getting really sick with what I would down the road learn was Lyme disease and ended up um, bedbound for about three years, during which time I could hardly walk on many days, could barely read or went through periods of at least you know eight months where I couldn't read at all. Um, fortunately, at the time, they were starting to um, create podcasts. So this goes back about 10 years now. Yep. And... Um, 
University of, of uh, Berkeley uh, was putting some of their 100, 1 and 200 level courses online. So I just kind of, you know, made that my university and I took classes in um, neuroscience and biology and biochemistry and just learned all of these different things about the mechanisms behind how change can happen, you know, ultimately in, in the hope that I would find something that could help change my, my condition. So um, first to start off, right, obviously you healed, right? You look great. You're doing great. Tell me sort of, and I don't want to put a narrative on it, but tell me how traditional medicine failed you. Yeah, sure. So I did start off, you know, going down the rabbit hole of traditional medicine. And one of the things that people, anyone who's experienced a long-term chronic condition, these are the types of conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, already with the two names I just mentioned, you can kind of tell that the names of those conditions are merely descriptions of symptoms, you know, chronic fatigue, tired all the time, fibromyalgia, you know, pain in your muscles. So they don't actually tell you anything useful about these conditions insofar as how to treat them. So, um, and Lyme disease is very similar. So this kind of comes with a double-edged sword where everyone kind of wants to be diagnosed or, you know, breathe a sigh of relief when they would get diagnosed. Um, and that does make sense for some things. If, you know, you have a broken leg, you want to be sure, you know, exactly what the issue is so they can set it in the right way. Um, lots of other conditions, acute conditions as well. But when it comes to these long-term chronic conditions, sometimes getting a diagnosis under conventional medicine can actually be even more confusing because now you start to get farmed out to different specialists, right? So I started going down the rabbit hole of, you know, seeing a general practitioner, found Lyme disease, found, you know, fatigue. Of course, when they test your, your blood, they find all this metabolic and hormonal derangement because your body's resources are just totally misallocated, kind of stuck in um, this chronic fight or flight state, just, you know, perpetually fighting off an ongoing infection. And then we can get into some of this, you know, how this feeds back on the mechanisms of the brain, particularly the limbic system to talk about how that mechanism gets set into gear. But the short of it, and to answer your question here about going that down that rabbit hole of traditional medicine is that I started to go down all of those different, you know, single avenues where the general practitioner would find that, of course, my heart was beating arrhythmically and I had postural orthostasis tachycardia. So he sent me to a cardiologist. And of course he found, you know, set me up with a halter top monitor and sent me home to sleep and found that my heart rate was all over the map. And I had all sorts of blood sugar and, you know, regulatory issues. Um, so they sent me to a neurologist and did nerve conductivity testing, punch muscle biopsies, um, functional MRIs, you name it. And of course, you know, when you have this kind of a specialty and you have these tools, when you look for problems, you're going to find them. And then you're going to start treating according to the problems that you're finding without really necessarily ever getting at the root cause of what's initiating those dysfunctions in the first place. So one could theoretically, and many have, and I was going down this road myself, spend a lifetime just chasing and treating symptoms without ever alleviating the cause that's perpetuating them in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was actually really funny. You got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is just like completely outside of the realm of, um, of Lyme's disease, of course. And, um, and actually one of my close family members, she has, uh, she has Lyme's disease and she's currently really struggling with it. And it took her about a year to be diagnosed. 
And the only way that she actually got diagnosed, she had all these neurological problems and basically all the things that you were experiencing, very debilitating. And the only thing that actually got her to be able to say, oh, I have Lyme's disease, was she put the pieces together herself. One of her friends had Lyme's disease and she's like, wow, my symptoms are really similar. So given that, right? So now you realize, okay, you know what? Maybe the the traditional method isn't that great. And I, I have these, these same problems with ADHD. I struggle with ADHD pretty often. And, um, and I notice, you know, like I never take Adderall. I'd never take five ants or anything like that. And I kind of want to stay away from the traditional methods of treating it. So what do you do? What are, what are the opposite ways of treating it? How did you get out of your, well, how did you cure yourself of Lyme disease, which in our medicine today is almost unheard of? Yeah. Great, great question. Well, it definitely takes a little bit of untangling and I'll just say for anyone listening, you know, it did not happen overnight. It was a lot of trial and error and stepping and misstepping and finding what, what worked. Um, but really what started to untangle it for me was learning about the brain and the nervous system and how the body can become stuck in this chronic fight or flight response, which perpetuates a lot of inflammation throughout the system and inflammation basically underpins um, just about any condition you can think about. Inflammation is kind of at the root cause. Well, and also thing, explain, explain the loop, right? So explain exactly what you mean by the loop of the fight or flight response. Yeah. So essentially what happens is um, I know you're really into, you know, habits and how things can become ingrained as patterns. Well, yep. the same way that we can learn a certain habit, right? Like let's say every time you're stressed out, <laughs> you go to the fridge and, um, and, you know, eat a cookie or something like that. And this can become a habit because what's happening there is it's not only getting reinforced behaviorally, but it's actually getting reinforced, uh, neurologically, meaning the behavior is giving you some kind of a reward. Uh, that's to say, you know, your brain thinks it's doing the right thing by eating that cookie. Every time you feel stressed, your brain gets a little bit of dopamine and that solidifies a neural network in the brain saying that this is the right thing to do every time you have that feeling. And that's why it's very difficult to break a physical habit like this kind of thing or behavioral habit. But the brain and the body can also learn subconscious habits, deeply subconscious habits of how it should respond and apply its resources. I'll give you an example of this. So a study was done where they gave uh, rats an injection of a dextrose solution. So basically sugar water combined with uh, E. coli. So had this uh, you know viral component and it had this, um, this dextrose or this sugar component. They did this over and over again for a few weeks. And as you would suspect, each time they did it, the rats had this immune response. So their immune system responded as if they were getting sick because they were injected with this virus. Yeah. Then they did this, um, they repeated the, the same experiment, but they did it only with the sugar water. So no traces of virus whatsoever. And they found that the rats responded in the exact same way. So the same immune response was evoked. Now, obviously the rats are not aware of this. They don't know that they got a placebo versus the real thing. Um, so, so it just shows that this is a deeply subconscious neurological process whereby the brain can actually learn a certain response. And then even beyond the time of, of infection, it can continue to perpetuate that response uh, because of certain associations it's made uh, that it's made in the past. Yeah. So in my case, it was, you know, getting this Lyme disease also this is very common for a lot of people with chronic fatigue or ongoing chronic conditions. It coincided with um, a period of a lot of life stress. I was overexerting myself a bit as an athlete, also running a surfing camp in Eastern Long Island. And then I got this infection and 
it just created this ingrained feedback loop where every time I became stressed out, my body would respond with an over-exaggerated immune response, which would cause more symptoms, release more inflammation, um, and ultimately keep this, this vicious cycle going. So it's essentially to distill it down, you know, these feedback loops to the simplest component. Imagine you have a, a you know, a circle and you have these kind of just two uh, sides to it. On the one side, you have symptoms. Um, and on the other side, you have, let's say, you know, adrenaline or stress or a stress response. So when your body is experiencing symptoms, let's say, you know, uh, pain in, in your muscles, for instance, um, that's going to create a certain amount of tension or even subconscious stress. And when you have that stress, the body and the brain are releasing now cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, um, these stress hormones, which are basically pro-inflammatory. So that excess inflammation in the system is going to loop back around and lead to the perpetuation of more symptoms, which causes more stress, which causes more symptoms and round and round we go. Interesting. And one of the things that I notice is, especially with anxiety and, um, and addiction too, you know, all of those things, we find ways to, to reinforce them so strongly. Like, I don't think people understand the, the reinforcement pattern. So think about it this way, right? Imagine that you feel really stressed when you're going to go and eat food. You go and eat food and you get stressed, then you eat food. And to settle your stress, you go and eat the food. The same thing goes with cigarette smoking, right? right? You get stressed. There's actually a lot of good studies to prove that people who smoke cigarettes are actually more stressed because the stress triggers the cigarette. You know, that's right. Yeah. And then you reinforce the behavior because you say, okay, you know what? To relieve myself of the stress, I'm going to have my cigarette. I'm going to have my food. So really, well, I guess the question is, how did that loop? Like, how were you stuck in that loop? And then how'd you get out of it? Yeah. So it's important to say that these loops form when we're not being conscious. They form when we, when our bodies are just going with these flows. And in this day and age, we have a lot of different you know, things coming at us from all different angles. We have life stress, we have different pathogens. There are, are all these things that are realities. And when they coincide, they can essentially almost like short circuit the system um, where it becomes overloading and overwhelming to the, to the nervous system. And when that happens, the autonomic nervous system starts to shift into more of a sympathetic dominant. So that's activating that fight or flight response more often of the time. When we do that, now here's the interesting part of what's happening in the brain. Um, the, the sympathetic branch of the nervous system is much more strongly correlated with the limbic system, which is this primitive part of the brain that formed early on in our development and sits directly on top of the brainstem. And simply in virtue of the fact that it's closer to the, to the nervous system, it's closer to the brainstem than the neocortex, which is that part of the brain that surrounds it, that you know, uh, wrinkled part on the outside, uh, which is our rational brain. But because that limbic system is, is closer to the, um, uh, to the nervous system, its messages get there quicker. So basically what we have to do when it comes to breaking these loops are engage that rational side of our brain, engage the neocortex and try to, as Viktor Frankl says, get in that space between stimulus and response so that we can ultimately create a different pattern and change our behavior. So one of the things that, that really blew my mind was your technique, right? Your technique is, is really, really simple, but you know, I, I, it really, really works, you know, just take a breath. So sort of explain to me exactly what your technique is. Yeah. So this is something I just kind of, you know, happened upon and 
obviously the more I looked into it, I realized, you know, this goes back thousands of years as people coming to their own realization that the breath is this great inroad. And if you talk to any, you know, yogi or meditator, they'll tell you that the breath is a good inroad um, into just awareness, becoming aware of your current bodily state because it's both um, automatic and, uh, and can be controlled, right? So it happens without us having to think about it, but it also is something that we can control. And when we do control it, um, it can start to change our physiology. So yeah, like we were saying, you know, it really comes down to just breaking these loops. And the first thing is becoming aware of it. If your body is stuck in a fight or flight response, um, you know, let me actually back it up for a sec. I'll just say, you know, it can be a little bit more challenging when these things are happening deeply subconsciously. Like I told you the analogy of, you know, these, these rats getting that kind of poison, because this is something that clearly they're not causing themselves. Um, When you have a behavioral habit, like going to the refrigerator, eating a certain food or something, it's still very much a subconscious process, but arguably there might be more surface area for us to intervene because there's also a lot of real world action taking place there. So we can, we're aware, like when you go to the fridge and you eat something, you know, it's easier to become aware of that than it is to become aware of the fact that your body is producing this, you know, subtle uh, excitation or arousal of the stress response. Um, So it does take a little bit of cultivation, but the first thing is, is learning how to get in tune and in touch with your own body again um, and your mind to realize when it's producing this outsized stress response. And basically it feels like a sense of agitation. It feels like a sense of discomfort. It can feel even mentally or, or like our thoughts, like there's, you know, something's not right. Like some emergency is happening somewhere in the background that I need to attend to that part of my attention needs to remain on, even though I can't really put my finger on what it is. So when people are experiencing that, the first thing to do is just become aware of that. The next step is to interrupt it. And for me, this was, you know, the thing that I had with me at all times, which was my breath. So it started off just about taking this one deep breath. Cause I felt like that's one thing that no matter where I was or what was happening, I could have control at least over, you know, that breath. And, um, that started to expand into a little bit of a more, you know, deeper practice where every time I would take a deep breath, I would, uh, you know, exhale and relax. Then I started to consciously drop my shoulders, then consciously relax my face, or even sometimes, you know, use my, my hands, my fingers to like massage the tissue. Basically it was really about, you know, getting in that space between the time when I realized I was in, you know, holding tension or in a state of stress. Um, and the time that I would, uh, act on that. And when it comes to, you know, people with chronic condil- uh, chronic condition, the action often looks like, you know, becoming more hypervigilant, trying to control your symptoms, trying to control your diet, maybe going on the internet, reading more about the condition, all of these things that in the short term, like you said, you know, when it comes to eating that food in the short term, it's a sense of relief because your brain says, Oh, good. You know, we have this problem, but we're doing something about it. We're taking action. We're researching, or we're, you know, changing our diet or we're making some, you know, proclamation or something like that. Um, so in the short term, your brain gets this little sense of relief that, all right, we're tending to the problem, but then the problem comes back stronger, right? Because we haven't really addressed the root cause of it. And when it comes back stronger, that's when it, we can start to reinforce those behavioral loops. So it's really all about you know, identifying and intervening early in the system. And for me, it started with that, just taking one deep breath. Um, 
And now that's evolved into something, you know, a little bit more uh, sophisticated that can help people to really solidify these new neural pathways. Um, but it starts with awareness and interruption. Well, so so that's the thing that really, um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here sort of as my listener and trying to think, okay, you know what, that all sounds great, but it's so hard to develop these meditation tactics and just breathing tactics, you know, and I've been trying to peel it apart and try to understand why it's so difficult to meditate, why it's so difficult to just calm and stop down. And let me, let me run this by you and tell me what you think and then, and then expand on it or reject it. So the thing that the thing about anxiety, right? Whenever you feel a sense of anxiety, you feel a sense of panic or a sense of highly focused state, then you are, we'll say, well, you're highly focused. You're highly focused on something else. And most likely you're not in touch with your body. You're not in touch with anything that exists within here. Let's say, yeah, you're focused on, let's say, oh, I have this little lump on my hand. Therefore, you're going to put every single thing into your hand. And then you start focusing on problem solving and, and doing all these things to just get rid of what's going on in your hand. And what I realize is that when you're doing that, yes, you're activating your fight or flight response, right? Yes, you're becoming, we'll say, highly focused on that one thing and not able to sort of look at the landscape, but then at the same time, you're stimulated, right? So you imagine, you know, we talk all the time about overstimulation today and all the people who are struggling with, yes, social media addiction, whatever you name it, we're always being stimulated. We're always doing things. And when we're stimulated, we're highly focused on something. So I think the biggest problem with meditation is that people don't know how to quiet their minds. They don't know how to calm their minds. And it's so difficult to just like, sit there and be, you know, there was this great study where they brought people into a room and they told them to sit there for 15 minutes. And they said, just sit there, nothing more. There's a desk here. And the only thing that you can do, you don't have a phone, anything like that. The only thing you could do is press this red button right here. If you want, this red button is going to shock you every time you press it. And I think something like 60% <laughs> of people pressed it to shock themselves because they were so damn bored. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, that makes sense. I'd probably, I'd probably do it just out of curiosity. Because <laughs> why not? Of course, you know, 15 minutes of boredom. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, the question is, you know, why is it so, so difficult? So it's, it's a really good point. And there's a couple of reasons. Um, for one, on the surface, we just don't have clear uh, instructions or have practices that whereby we do that. You know, so much of the way our, our life, society, tasks, activities are set up uh, in this day and age uh, are exertion oriented. You know, even let's, let's take it down to just a physical level. If I told you to, you know, contract your, your right leg muscle, right? Your, your right thigh or quad um, you'd, you'd be able to do that. If I told you how to, you know, like create tension in your, in your shoulders, you'd be able to do that. But if you're sitting there right now um, and I told you to relax your quad, you'd be like, well, I think it's already relaxed, but I was like, no, 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 really relax it. Right. Like you wouldn't really, the average person doesn't necessarily have that connection to their body in that way or to the, to the muscle where they can, we know what to do to, to create contraction. We don't know what to do or what it would feel like to create relaxation or deeper relaxation. And for this reason, meditation is extremely challenging for a lot of people these days. And I would actually argue that it's not necessarily the best place to start. Um, and can lead to that phenomenon of just trying to, you know, sit, sit there and not be able to go deeper in, into it. The approach I take is a little bit different. 
it's more about creating motion. You know, when someone is feeling stuck or anxious or in these loops, the the best thing to do is actually to move it, <laughs> to create something different. And a lot of people now are kind of catching on to this and saying that actually maybe, you know, meditating first thing in the morning might be even counterproductive. Maybe what we need to do is get up and, and move your system first or do something else. Um, because if you've been dormant for, you know, six to eight hours, and then first thing you're expecting to sit still, your mind is already like fully active. So you, you can't really necessarily work against that. Um, it's better to work with that. So what I use is uh, a couple of different tools. There are, I mean, there's the awareness and kind of pattern interruption. Um, and then we have a lot of somatic experiencing that goes along with that. And I use something called progressive relaxation, um, which is something that can help people start to form that, that connection, that neurological connection with their body um, to produce a relaxation response. So are you familiar with like PNF stretching? No. All right. So this is a type of stretching where I encourage like everyone to try this because it's pretty, pretty interesting. So let's take the, you know, standard static stretching that most people are familiar with did in high school, you know, for example, and we'll compare that. So imagine like you put your heel up on something like a step and static stretching would just be like, you're, you know, you're trying to reach down, touch your toe. So this can be analogous to sort of meditation. You're trying to get there, but you're just kind of, you know, sitting there. You're not really making, making progress. And maybe even you'll find that tension is building up in your system and in your hamstring um, because you're just trying to stretch yourself further in a way that your body doesn't want to go. But now if you actually, let's say, push your heel down into the step that it's on. So you're contracting the back of the leg or the hamstring, and then all of a sudden you relax it. So you stop pushing what you'll find is that instantaneously you've gained a few inches in flexibility. You can go much deeper. And then from that new position, that, that new set point, you can contract it again. And then, you know, let's say hold the contraction for 10 seconds or so, and then release it. Um, and then go a little bit deeper and you can do this over and over again until you, you find that you reach points of relaxation, which translates to increased inches in flexibility that you never knew you had before. And so when it comes to relaxing the nervous system or unwinding the nervous system from stress and anxiety, I really think the same principle applies. It's very difficult through meditation to just sit there and try and further relax yourself or further calm your mind. But if you actually first, you know, interrupt the pattern and create a little bit of tension in the system, then proportional or in reference to that tension, you can relax because tension and relaxation are uh, contextual, right? They're, they're referential. Like you, you can't have a, a contraction without a relaxation and vice versa. Yeah. So if you want a, a deeper relaxation response, you can actually create a little bit more of a, um, a stress response at first. Um, and that will actually help you to sink deeper. So, Interesting. so you're saying you could do that through movement. That's the you, tension. You can do that through, through movement. You can do that through, um, body awareness. Um, I mean, simplest way to do this is just for anyone, anyone listening who wants to try, if you're feeling, you know, anxious, like first thing is like, take a little bit of inventory in your body. Um, you know, where you feel that anxiety, where are you holding tension? Do you realize that, you know, maybe your shoulders are coming up if you're at the computer, maybe um, your throat or your chest or your stomach is, you know, contracting a little bit. 
So the next step would be to then go ahead and contract those areas consciously. They're already contracting. So you might as well do it consciously and then relax and then contract again and then relax. And what you'll find is that each time you can actually go deeper into that relaxation response. Interesting. So actually on the side, I am a, uh, it's, it's funny. I'm a certified professional hypnotist. So oh, cool. hypnotherapist and, uh, and my induction technique, the thing I do to get them into that state of relaxation is exactly that. Mm. That's really funny. And I never knew exactly why, um, exactly why that was it, but maybe that's why, because then you could actually notice the difference, right? Cause you know, you, you talked about the quad, right? So mm-hmm. if I want to relax the quad, I would argue that my quad is already relaxed. But if you say tense the quad, then you'll realize, okay, you know what? This is now I know exactly what true re- relaxation is. And right. Let it go. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, most of us are kind of tuned to a much higher baseline, um, than we, than we think is like what our actual baseline is, is usually wired up pretty intensely. And so in order to experience or to change that baseline, you know, to sort of change that set point, um, you have to actually start to change the neural circuitry of the brain. Um, and the same applies, whether it's to a, you know, psychological, uh, you know, mental, emotional stress response, or that physical stress response that creates tension in the muscles. Tension is tension. It's just, the muscles perceive it in one way, your thoughts or your mind perceives it in another way. These are all different different expressions of a certain neurological wiring that fortunately with the right type of process and, and repeated conditioning, we can change. So one of the things that I want to get into, and you just transitioned to it perfectly, is your philosophy on this. And this blew my mind. I'm going to, I'm going to say your quote, you have to surrender to the battle only to win the war. And this is really the debate that, that I've been asking myself for a very long time. When I experience pain, when I experience anxiety, when I experience whatever stress, should I fight it or should I sort of integrate it? And I'll let you have the floor. What do you think? Yeah. Well, you know, like you rightly noted before, when we take the actions to alleviate ourselves of stress, it's usually... Um, a, a more stress-inducing, you know, action or one that re- that is, is excitatory, right? It eventually like contributes to that arousal instead of really properly calming it. Um, what you know, you you pointed out there, and what you you pulled out in that quote of you know, in order to like um, surrendering the battle is what's kind of required in order to win the war. Um, it's it's really that we we want to actually get to a point where we can expose ourselves to the thing that's triggering us or that's causing stress while still remaining calm. And that's something that's done through, this is a a scientific process been tested and vetted and has different names. Uh, Gradual exposure is one of them. You may have heard of like gradual exposure therapy, incremental training is another one um, or systematic desensitization. So essentially what we're doing is we are using a strategic approach to expose ourselves to slightly bigger doses of the thing that's causing us stress or causing us agitation. Um, And we're practicing remaining calm throughout that. So, you know, this can look like using a technique, like I just shared of contracting first and relaxing at reorigin, we have a slightly more involved kind of five-step process that we walk people through that teaches them everything from start to finish of how to become aware of the thoughts, interrupt them, and then replace them ultimately with a new pattern. Um, but ultimately 
what we, the state that we want to get to is where we are, where we can handle, we can come in contact with any, with any trigger or thing that used to stress us out. Um, but we basically are so in tune with our systems that we now have the ability to choose our response. We know how to produce the relaxation response over the fight or flight response. And we can, we can choose this time and time again. Yeah. Well, that's actually what I do with my hypnosis clients. What I do is I literally, I get them into this hypnosis, this sense of deep, deep relaxation to the point where they are just like, you know, so relaxed to the point where you literally can't get anxious from that moment. And then I say, imagine you're about to take a test or imagine you're about to do the thing that gets you anxious. Yeah. And you could see them right away. They get, they, they do like a little startle or a little like jolt, you know? And then I'm like, but realize that you're right now, you're in training mode. You're in a training module. Like this is not real. And you're just sort of imagining it. And, um, and that is confrontation therapy, right? That is desensitization training. And, um, and it's like, you know, when I, when I talk to people afterwards, they're like, that was really helpful because we don't really think about it, but we are reactant creatures, right? Anxiety almost by definition is being reactant right? Uh, a gazelle turns around and sees a lion and he runs, right? He's reacting to the lion and he's reacting to the threat and he's getting anxious and running away. But instead, what you can do is say, okay, you know what? I have this test going on. I'm going to prepare how I'm going to be for that test. I'm going to be confident. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be well put together and I'm going to be composed and I'm not going to react to whatever emotions hit me in the moment. Instead, I'm going to sort of it's it's weird to say, but prepare my emotions, which uh, which you know, for at least for at least the people I know, it's become very successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you're talking about is is the power of mental rehearsal, basically. Yeah, and that as human beings, we have this really distinct ability to create our own experience. Um, Zig Ziglar famously said that the body can't tell the difference between what's real and what's vividly imagined. And we know this to be true because if you imagine really vividly your, your favorite food, for instance, you might start to salivate, you know, your body will start producing the hormones and enzymes, everything needed to ingest that food, even though you're not actually eating it, it's not even there, but your body starts to reorganize its chemistry simply in virtue of the fact that you've held this thing in mind. And the opposite is true also, like the example you just gave, you know, where you have someone think that they're, you know, imagine that they're taking a test, taking that exam, and that produces a fight or flight response, right? A mild or maybe moderate stress response. Um, The interesting difference here between, you know, animals, because you gave that example of like the the gazelle being chased by the tiger, um, is that animals also experience stress and anxiety. But the key difference is that as soon as the threat passes, they return back to baseline and they have their ways of doing that. You can see dogs like shaking it off, right? They shake off the stress. um, And then they return to that baseline. But as humans, we have this interesting extra, you know, ability to ruminate. We can think back, we can ruminate on the, on the stressor or the, um, you know, event that, that occurred, or we can worry about an event in the future that hasn't even occurred yet. So these are like what's called, I've heard them referred to as virtual aggressors because they're not real. They're not happening now. That zebra isn't chasing you now. They're virtual. They're, they're merely thoughts of uh, you know, something that could potentially <laughs> stress us out. But simply in virtue of the fact that we're thinking about it, the body still inhabits and produces the same physiology. So knowing that is huge because 
most of the time that's happening subconsciously that's happening without our permission and that's what's determining our levels of anxiety or stress or calm but once we start to realize this and learn that we can intervene it's incredibly empowering because we can use that same mechanism that you just described of mental rehearsal to gradually expose ourselves to the things that would ordinarily trigger us but we can we can do it in these like training ground these safe spaces um and then eventually we can we can practice uh, incrementally in the real world as well. So one of the best quotes that I've heard, and it's really simple and it makes intuitive sense, is fear is false evidence appearing real, right? Yeah. And and it really, really, you know, it's it's just so obvious. It makes so much sense, and that is, in my opinion, the cause of most of the anxiety that we experience today. So explain to me how you use visualization as your tact as your tactic to really um, to defeat this. Yeah, well, so with visualization, there's something something known as um, reciprocal inhibition. So it basically means that when one mechanism is active, the other one is not. So like if you're you know writing or pushing a pen with your right hand, you can't be doing something else at the same time other than what you're doing with that hand. And this region of the brain, the limbic system, or, or this uh, emotional center in the brain, particularly the amygdala, also can't be in two juxtaposed states at the same time. So this is why it's actually difficult when you're in that stress state, when you're, when you are anxious, um, you know, why it's, we do get stuck in like tunnel vision and it's so hard to think of something positive or to relax because that side of the brain and that branch of the nervous system, the sympathetic branch is active. So by intervening and replacing the response, the bodily response with a different response. So let's say, um, let's just take the example of, you know, that you gave already this, this person taking a test. Now, you know, let's say his, his worry or what comes up naturally that's producing the anxiety would be um, thoughts of himself sitting there, not knowing the answers or getting the wrong answers. And then maybe projecting that out to, you know, failing the exam and failing the course and like all these things that our minds can just kind of spin up. Yep. So you would think, okay, well, what would be the opposite of that? What might he want to replace that with? And it can be something specific uh, and simple, like sitting in the exam room and feeling fully confident, uh, like knowing that he's already done the work and he, you know, uh, is confident in whatever results will happen or being okay with whatever results will happen. Um, Or it can be just like even telescoping out, you know, several years and having graduated college and moved on and everything went fine, you know, but you can use this visualization of seeing yourself um, in the state that you desire, uh, seeing yourself having succeeded at that thing um, and remain calm, most importantly, to invoke that opposite branch of the nervous system, that parasympathetic side. So this is something that as you as you practice, it chimes in that reciprocal inhibition, which can work now in our favor instead of working against us. Yeah. You know what I do, which is pretty cool. I do. Um, this is a big technique in hypnosis. We uh, We make people meet their future selves. So I, I bring them into like a, a metaphorical basement, like they, their eyes are closed. They walk into a basement and then they see like they meet the person that they could be if they're going into the test and about to ace it. And then they mm-hmm. meet the anxious part of themselves and they separate from that anxious part of themselves and they meet that, that person, that calm collected person. And then they know like, okay, you know what? All I have to do is just be that person and I'll be fine. Yeah, right. That's a that's a great um, great point. And when you've practiced it, 
then you have that space available to you. You know how to go there because you've done it before in the safe environment. So now like during the, the, the test, it's, it's available to you. Um, you, know, you know how you can get yourself back to that state. Yeah, we do something similar at, at Reorigin. It's actually one of the very first exercises people do is create their vision for themselves. Um, and it's a process that takes them through doing this in a way that's really um, where they're really feeling their way through it. So you would, you know, could start off with like, you know, something that you want to do, take a trip when you see yourself completely healthy or be surrounded by friends or out to dinner or something. Yep. Um, but then the practice is really getting, going the next level deeper and thinking about how you want to actually feel during that time and really start, this is where, you know, the um, visualization and kind of uh, somatic experience goes one step deeper than just the intellectualization of it. Because just thinking yourself in a certain way isn't enough to change your physiology. You have to actually embody it, right? You have to actually really vividly imagine yourself and immerse yourself in this scenario. Um, I once heard it said like, you know, when you're doing this kind of stuff, don't imagine it, actually be there, like really put yourself there and think like, what is the rhythm in your body? Like, you know, where, what does your body feel like? Um, what is your speech? What do you see? Like all these different things, the more you can engage your senses around it, the deeper you can go into, into that sort of like the legitimacy of that response. And the more that will actually entrain your nervous system to be able to go there on demand in the future. Yeah. And then, you know, that achieves, right? Everything that we're talking about, what that achieves is becoming intentional. Right. Because that, that's what you end up being instead of becoming reactive, instead of, you know, having this preset habitual and anxious or whatever response that normally comes up with. Then you say, OK, you know what? Instead of tapping into that one, I'm going to tap into this new one, this mm -hmm. better one, this one that makes well, that makes me happier. And that, you know, is that the one that I actually want to use instead of this anxious personality yeah. that exists within me? Yeah, it's 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 an intentional intentional process and it really requires a lot of intention at first, right? At first we have to constantly kind of monitor and be aware of when we're in that state that we don't want to be in. And then we have to do these practices like okay, what is the state that I would prefer to be in? What is the one that I'm trying to get to and shift ourselves there repeatedly. But the coolest part to me is that when you do this repeatedly, when you practice this over and over again, it eventually does become your new default state or your new default response. And you can very easily um, with enough, you know, practice enough diligence, get to that point where, you know, when you go to take a test, you actually just find that you relax because you have that confidence because you've rehearsed that before yeah. um, or whatever it might be. So it's a really interesting thing how we can just, it, it's basically a habit, you know, it's a bodily habit. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it makes a lot more sense when you realize that anxiety is also a habit. And that you just naturally defaulted into that state. Mm. And all you have to do is just, well, change the habit, you know? Yeah. It's, um, so I did, I did want to take a slight left turn because this has been ruminating throughout my mind this entire conversation. And I think um, this is the, the, the crux of the issue is this idea of control. So the problem with someone who feels anxious is that they feel like they're out of control. Right. They feel like there's no way that they can, you know, juggle, you know, if you're overwhelmed, there are so many different things that you have to juggle. If you have this little thing on your, you know, your, this little bump on your wrist or whatever, you know, that might be cancer, then you're like, holy crap, like I'm not in control of this and I might be screwed. And all of these things come down to control. And of course, we're talking about being intentional here, but I wonder how much actual control 
that we're able to actually exhibit. So for example, again, I'll bring up your quote, right? You have to surrender to the battle only to win the war. In essence, you have to give up control. So uh, I guess, I guess if you don't mind, you mind if I take you on a little story, a little story that I had this week? Yeah. So, um, so this week I, I decided that I was going to start doing transcendental meditation. And that this is something that Tim Ferriss says, if you've ever heard of Tim Ferriss. Sure. And, um, and I've just been, you know, acting it out and saying, okay, I'm going to do 20 minutes worth of transcendental meditation every single day. And I get into the meditation and I realize that the reason why I haven't been meditating consistently for the last two years was because when I was a senior in high school, so three years ago, I had a traumatic brain injury where I got, uh, a head collision. I was playing basketball. Kid hits into the side of my head and I got a concussion. That was, that was absolutely brutal. The kid got knocked out. I was dazed and confused. And ever since then I've had chronic head pain on this right side of my head every single day since that day. And, um, absolutely brutal. Been to neurologists, been to all your traditional medicine guru, like not gurus, but you know, doctors. And, um, and, they gave me pills. They gave me whatever, everything that they tried, you know, antidepressants, I, you know, they gave me everything and none of it worked. So I ended up stopped taking the pills. It was miserable. I get to the um, meditation. And the first thing that I do is I realize, okay, now that I quiet my mind, now that I'm meditating, I can't, I can't do it. I can't. Do it. It's too painful. This thing I'm, I'm experiencing. I always push down the pain. I always fight the pain. I always just use, let's say, you know, integrating myself in my schoolwork to push aside the pain and not have to worry about it. But when I'm left with a quiet mind, I have to deal with this pain. So, um, and that was why I never meditated in the past. So within about three days, I came to the conclusion that instead of fighting the pain, instead of pushing off the pain, I was going to just let it take me like whatever it wanted to do, it was just going to do. And then I was going to see if I could try to like integrate it. Like I felt like I had two brains. I had like the, the part of the brain that I've been pushing off and the, the regular brain that I've, that I've been able to control. And, um, and within about three days, I integrated the brains. Like, I don't know how to explain it other than that it integrated and it became one brain. And ever since then, my head pain. And that was on Tuesday. So this is Monday. It was six days ago. Ever since then, my brain pain, my, my chronic pain has reduced by about 50%. Wow. That's significant. Yeah. It's yeah. been incredible. That's, that's a, that's a crazy story. And I, I didn't know about your, uh, your injury in the past. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's something that I just kind of deal with, you know, I've just been saying like, all right, you know what, I guess this is just something that I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life and whatever. And, um, and, like this week just absolutely blew my mind because first of all, when I sit down to meditate now, which I've, I've been doing ever since no pain, zero. Mm-hmm. And then now, you know, usually like being with all these lights and all this stuff, this would kill me, but I've, I'm completely fine. Yeah. Well, there's this, this classic saying that what you resist persists and what you release or let go or stop resisting basically disappears eventually or dissipates. And I think that's very true here, you know, from what we were saying previously about just the, the inflammatory loop, these cycles and how our knee-jerk reaction, because of how we're so entrained, what becomes ingrained in us is to, you know, uh, fight back, is to encounter resistance and resist or push back against it. Um, but there's also this great Zen proverb that always stuck with me, which says that the rock is only heavy when you push against it. So, you know, we, we all have different challenges and, and rocks and things there, but 
going up to it and, and pushing on it, the harder you push, all you're going to do is exert more force, more, more energy, and in all likelihood, you know, produce more inflammation and make it push back. So what we want to do when it comes to these types of like conditions or, or pain syndrome, which is huge right now, there's actually just an article in the Washington Post, I think last week about um, brain retraining for pain syndrome. And they found that it had a, a recent study, um, 66% of the people that did this brain retraining for their chronic pain were, I think, 100% pain-free. Um, wow. I can't remember what the time period was, but after they, they followed them and they remained pain-free for over a year. Wow. Um, and 98% of all participants um, experienced some to significant relief of pain. So it, it really is like that powerful that you know, through our own internal mechanisms, where we direct our awareness, how we hold our bodies, um, whether we push or, you know, whether we contract or relax in the face of these certain stressors, um, that that really can change the, the brain's response and how that's initiated throughout the system. Wow. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy because the first reaction, right? Like intuitively, what I think is, well, I get an illness, what do we, what is the term? We say we're going to fight the illness, fight it. right? Yeah. It's everywhere. Right. Fight the, the war. Illness. We declare war on it, right? The war on cancer, the war on everything. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And like, you know, what am I going to do? Yeah, exactly. Like if I personally get cancer, what am I going to do? I'm going to fight. I'm going to, you know, resist. And well, you said this most beautifully in, in one of the other podcasts, and I'd love for you to say it again. When you fight something, the act of fighting creates cortisol, which is the stress hormone, which creates inflammation. Like literally, you know, it's a, it's a perfect direct link. And well, normally we think, okay, you know, we're going to fight it and we're going to be able to sort of, when we do that, we're going to fight our body, but yeah. Like what's wrong with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when, when we talk about like fighting our own body or fighting the system, what comes to mind is autoimmune conditions where the body essentially is in a way fighting itself. It's mounted an immune response toward its own tissue. And now it's causing uh, degeneration of it, of its own tissue. And I think the challenge for so many people is you think, you know, okay, well, if, if I'm not going to fight this, then what am I going to do? Just sit yeah. here and do nothing. And there's a third option right? The, because sitting there and doing nothing is kind of like, um, you know, objects in motion, stay in motion, objects at rest, stay at rest. If your body is stuck in a vicious cycle, whereby it's overproducing inflammation, which leads to more symptoms, which leads to more inflammation and so forth, then doing nothing is actually allowing or enabling or even supporting that cycle to continue. So we don't want to do nothing, but we also don't want to like we were just saying, become hypervigilant. We don't want to actively take this, you know, fighting stance against it, which can also, um, you know, draw more, more resources away from, from the body's natural ability to heal. So what we want to do is this, this kind of third option, what I like to think of as, as transmutation or transformation. And that's really what we've been talking about, which is transforming your body's innate responses into something else. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I'll give you just kind of simple examples that people listening can kind of understand, you know, how this can work or what this can look like, you know, imagine um, that you are experiencing something uncomfortable, right? It could be physical. It could be emotional, whatever it is. Um, in that moment, we often think that we have two choices. I can ignore this, meaning I can do nothing um, or I can, you know, fight this, right? Yeah. There's actually a third option. 
The third option is you can go outside, you can play basketball, you can get absorbed <laughs> in something completely different, right? So you can reorient yourself in a different direction. Um, and that's really ultimately what we're, what we're doing here. Because like I mentioned, if you do nothing, you're not really fixing the problem. If anything, you can, you're actually just, you know, enabling it to continue. But what we want to do is get in the habit of like stopping, acknowledging that we have this choice and then going you know, focusing on where we want to go. And that can be through visualization, through an immersive experience, or through physically just changing our direction and doing something differently. You know, if I have like a bunch of negative thoughts that are coming to me, um, there might be a time sure where, you know, they're uh, pointing me towards some real world issue that I have to, that needs my attention. Um, but more often than not, the majority of those thoughts are just kind of rumination are just, you know, pulling us in a circle. Now I don't want to ignore them because then they'll just come back you know, stronger, but I can choose to like, every time those thoughts come up that are not helping me and that are not calling me to something that really needs my attention, I can say, okay, instead of doing this, I'm going to go for me, I like skateboarding. So, you know, I'm going to go ride my skateboard around the block a few times. Um, and that will just get me out of that context and, and completely get me out of that headspace and onto something much more pleasant, more enjoyable. Yeah. I think, I think people don't realize that and they don't realize the fact that even though you can focus on the negative, you know, it's all about the narrative that you create for yourself. You could create the narrative of focusing on the negative, or you could create the narrative that, well, either that is a positive so for in your case your Lyme's disease was a positive right you grew out of it and all that or you could say it's irrelevant right it doesn't bother me and i'm just going to go and play basketball and the thing that people don't realize and this is this is in my opinion why anxiety exists is that the amygdala right which is the the part of the brain that controls fear is one neural pathway away from the hypothalamus right as you said before the neocortex the human brain the rational brain that's multiple it has to go through multiple different channels the amygdala is pretty unique in the fact that if you feel fear, it is going to be the first thing that pops up on your mind right away. And you have to, and basically that is the thing that sets the narrative. That is the most prominent thing in your mind. It's as if, you know, the rational mind is standing in the corner over there, you know, trying to speak to you, you know, trying to be like, Hey, you know, what's up. And then you have the, you have a loudspeaker in your ear saying fear, 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 anxiety, you know? And, um, that's why in Pinocchio, for example, you have Jiminy Cricket, you know, he's, 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 mm -hmm. he's He's the conscience and he's a bug yes. because he could be just easily squashed, you know, and, um, and that's the thing, right? So what do you have to do to really over, override that anxiety, override that, you know, override that thing screaming in your ear is, well, first of all, that's really difficult because our brains are wired to be negative. They're wired to take the negative narrative instead of the positive. And also you need to calm your mind, right? You need to be really calm and really, you know, be able to listen to that voice in the corner of the room. I think one of the things that's that's really helpful goes back to something actually you said earlier, which is that anxiety is a habit. You know, thinking of it in that way can depersonalize it. Mm -hmm. It can oftentimes what keeps the anxiety going or what makes it worse is that meta level of thinking. It's the meaning making about it. Oh man, this means that, you know, I'll never, you know, I won't take that test. I, I won't pass it. I, I won't get to the next class. You know, this means that I'm a failure, like all this other stuff. That's really what's producing the, the bulk of the anxiety. Um, it's true that it starts with the amygdala and it starts with that neural circuitry because of the brain's kind of onboard or evolved negativity bias, right? It's just looking out for you. But once you start to realize like, you know what, this, this isn't a real story. Like this isn't really me. And, and the fact that I'm experiencing this 
anxiety, even this experience is merely chemicals flowing through the system as a result of an old ingrained habit or old neural pathways, because that's ultimately what a habit is. When you think of it in that way, immediately, you know, the effect it can have on people is that they, they start to depersonalize it. They dissociate from it or, or disidentify from it. So it's no longer my you know identity that I'm anxious. I'm always anxious. I get anxious, you know, for tests or this or that. It's more like, oh, this is just old information that my, that my brain is giving me. Like, okay, now that I'm aware of that, first of all, just, just being aware of that can help me to calm down. But secondly, now I know I, I can actually have a choice. I can feed my brain different information rather than, you know, staring at, you know, my old exam paper where I got everything wrong and reliving that, you know, I can, uh, you know, open, open a, a book or a magazine or, or something to something that's like really interesting to me. And I can focus on something that I really enjoy and that I love. And now you're creating this new circuitry, this new habit. Yeah. And part of that is, is determining that the other one is irrelevant, right? You're saying, okay, you know what, that, that fear that was bothering me, that actually isn't real, right? It's false evidence appearing real. It literally is not real. And, um, and actually there was a great, um, there was a great thing that you said in one of your podcasts. Yes. Yes. It was, um, it was a Tony Robbins idea that, um, I don't know if you got it from Tony Robbins, but it is the thing that, that, um, that I use whenever I'm struggling with fear or anything like that anxiety, you experience the anxious thought, whatever it is. And I recommend that people at home do this. You experience an anxious thought, put it into a visual image, and then imagine the image getting smaller and getting smaller and getting smaller. And then it gets so small to the point where it's so tiny, where you could just sort of like swipe it out and just, and just move away. And then the anxiety for me, at least, you know, it, it gets reduced by X percent. Like it gets reduced by a ton because it's just, you know, you realize, okay, you know what? I'm going to make it visual and tell my brain that this is irrelevant. I don't want to focus on it. Goodbye and swipe it away. Yeah. It's all about putting it in, in perspective. You know, it's our anxiety, our fear, our false evidence appearing real. It's no more uh, relevant than any other story that we could choose to focus on. So for every, you know, uh, you know, failure or something that we could ruminate on, you could think of a success, you know, I got out of bed this morning, great success, right? So yep. it's, it's that we don't tend to think about those kinds of things, but we do tend to give that amount of weight to the little tiny failures or, or things that we perceive as, you know, things that didn't go well. Um, we give those outsized amounts of attention and um, that ends up being what produces our, our, kind of state or, or our response. So yeah, by changing your relationship to it, by even changing the, the size of it, um, you can change its significance over you or the impact it has over you. Um, you know, one example of how I'll use it sometimes is like, let's say, you know, one of the things that can be overwhelming to a lot of people is the email inbox, right? We of get course. a lot of messages and everything. Um, I found this a long time ago that when I, if I feel that way, you know, that, oh man, like I haven't tackled my inbox, you know, maybe after a weekend or something, a long weekend, you come back and you think it's going to be overwhelming. First thing I'll do is I'll check it on my phone instead of the computer because it's a smaller screen, right? Less intimidating. <laughs> mm. So um, this is just one of the ways that we can actually play with, um, with shape, with, um, with size, with all different like sort of textures of those, those experiences. Um, to see how it impacts us. If you've ever been on, or I would, actually this is a cool experiment um, for everyone to go on um, Google with your smartphone and just look up any animal like octopus is really cool or shark. And Google started this a little while ago that they have augmented reality mode where, so it'll 
pop up like on the first page of Google and you'll be able to view one of those animals in augmented reality. And if anyone hasn't tried augmented reality, basically places it right in the middle of your room or wherever you, you know, point your phone. And one of the things you can do is you can change the size of it. So um, I recommend the octopus. It's crazy. You can make it really huge. And when you're looking at it, it looks literally like it's right in your room and it's scary. And you can actually see like how that, you know, feels in your body. And then you can shrink it down to like a tiny little, you know, pin sized, uh, you know, critter to where it's like really cute. And it has a completely different effect on you. Interesting. Yeah. And I liked it. That, that's a great metaphor too. It's like, you know, Maybe, maybe don't use an octopus, but like, you know, some scary animal. You imagine that your anxiety is just this giant bear that's just walking next to you at all times. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or you can, you can imagine it as the real scene, right? Like, let's say if, if your anxiety is related to something that might have a visual component, like an argument you had, and you just are replaying this kind of argument as like this big thing in your mind, you can kind of shrink that down, even, you know, change the the texture of it, turn it into a cartoon or something. Um, and that really changes the association that you have with it. It changes the narrative, right? It's, yeah. if it's a cartoon, then we associate cartoons as funny and all of these things. When I, when I was listening to your, your podcast and reading all of your blogs and things, I, I realized that, um, that yeah, like every single thing that we do is all based on patterns and associations, right? So for example, I say one word, we'll say cancer, right? I say cancer, it automatically has a negative association with it, right? And language in general has negative associations or positive associations with the words. So I could say I'm excited or I could say I'm enthusiastic. And when you when you add those different languages and therefore those different associations, then you change everything. Right. So you, yeah, yeah. 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 And even, even when it comes to, you know, embarking on a certain endeavor, like regaining your health or retraining your brain or something, this is something that, you know, one narrative and certainly one that I experienced when I was in the throes of that, that illness is one of more of like a victimhood of like, Oh, you know, why do I have to go through this? Or why do I have to do all this stuff when everyone else doesn't? And um, it can just seem like this mountain that you're climbing in front of you. The other narrative could be that this is an exploration or even an, an adventure, right? This is like every time I experience a symptom, a headache or a pain or something, this is an opportunity, not an obstacle, but an opportunity to change my brain. And the more of these opportunities I get throughout the day, the more I get to practice these various techniques and methods that we're talking about. And the more, you know, quickly and completely I'm, I'm changing my brain. So it can become this really, you know, these narratives can um, empower us or they can disempower us. When you say something like, you know, cancer, it's in a way can be disempowering because yeah. it's this finality of it. It's like this final state. When in reality, our body always has some cancerous cells. Cancer basically just means, uh, you know, replication of cells in a certain uh, direction in a more degenerative or um, maladaptive way, as opposed to our natural, you know, like uh, cell replication, which is um, trending toward, you know, better health, better balance, things like that, homeostasis. Yep. So these are like non-homeostatic cell replication, but there's always some of that taking place in the body. There's always some cancer in the body. Now, I don't want people to panic when they hear that and say, oh my God, I have cancer. It's like, well, cancer is just the name that we put on it, but we all have some of these cells that are less advantageous and much more cells that are way more advantageous to health. So it's just how you want to kind of like label it and look at it. 
And that's the point, right? So when you think about it, there is always something in the world to be anxious about, right? Just like, just like, you know, cancer always exists. Anxiety always exists, right? There's always something to be anxious about. You just turn on the news, you're going to find something, right? You go on Twitter, you're going to find something, but there's always something to be positive about. And then there's always something to just say, you know what, today, well, maybe today wasn't the best day, right? Yesterday I had a really, really weird day, but, um, but I literally spent the night. I was like, all right, what was good about this day? Because I don't want to, I don't want to go to sleep thinking that I lived a shitty day and I'm going to live a shitty life or anything like that. What was good about this day? And I say, okay, I made my bed. Right. And I, I played some basketball and I, and I talked to my family, you know, and when you have stuff like that, you could, you could frame the narrative and, um, and really, and change the way you think. But, but what you're really going to have to do there is you're going to have to quiet your mind. You're going to say, holy crap, all these thoughts that are, that are kind of coming up and trying to sabotage my day, I have to actively suppress them or at least let them go. And, and that, that really makes a difference. Yeah. I think it's important. The, you know, distinction between suppression and exposure or suppression and and letting go, because they are very different and we don't want to necessarily suppress something because um, if we do that, it's going to create more pressure, right? Like more, more tension. Um, But it really is about honoring and recognizing our freedom to choose where that focus goes. And I love how you you said, you know, there's, of course, there's negative things going on in the world. There's negative news. Anyone could look back on their day or look at, look at the news and say all the things that are, that have gone wrong. Um, and you wouldn't be wrong about that. I mean, there's truth in that. At the same time, it's also true that there are so many things that are going right and there are so many things that are working for us, even when you might feel really sick or really ill, like I did when I was bedbound, there were still trillions of reactions taking place in my body per second, such that if those reactions were out of whack, I wouldn't even exist. So there was way more going well, you know, way more working for me in my body than working against me. And I think it's really boils down to, you know, our ability to, um, own where our awareness goes and to consciously redirect that. And the more we do that through repetition, um, the more we're actually retraining that old evolved negativity bias and actually upgrading it with a positivity bias. Like when you look back at your day and created this kind of filter of like, okay, what, you know, you asked yourself a better question rather than why did this day suck? You know, if you ask yourself that question, you're going to all of a sudden pretty easily find all these reasons, you know, uh, why it was a weird day. Why it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. But if you ask yourself a better question, you're going to get a better answer. So you ask yourself, you know, what was good about today? You're going to say, oh, wow. Well, like, okay, that first time I stepped outside in the morning and it was really crisp fall air or something like you're going to start, your mind will start filtering to find those things. And the more you practice this, uh, the more your brain naturally starts to do that. And before you know it, your experience of life starts to change where you realize, oh man, like, wow, everything is actually really pretty good. There's so much good stuff going on. Um, And that's when we find ourselves in this uh, relaxed state, this joyful state, this engaged state um, that's optimized for health and happiness. So that's, so let's get into one final topic because this is, this is a slight distinction that, um, that I feel like needs to be made. And, and you've been referencing it this entire podcast. And so have I in the fact that anytime we focus on the future, right? Every time we focus on something that's going to happen in the future, it will likely bring anxiety, 
right? Focusing on the future by definition almost brings anxiety. You bring a goal, right? Let's say I make a goal. Today, I need to have the best podcast I've ever had with Ben Ahrens. It has to be the best podcast ever. And when I set that goal, I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to be like, holy crap, like I need to have a great podcast, you know? And I'm always subservient to that goal because it's something that I'm below and I have to go and achieve. But when we're talking about, you know, I made my bed this morning and, you know, look how nice the air is outside and look how amazing everything's going on inside of my body or focus on your breath. All of these things are focusing on the present moment. And there's such a huge distinction between focusing on the future and the things that you haven't achieved and the things that you're unsatisfied about and the things that you want to get, like curing an illness, like focusing on helping yourself in the future or achieving X goal or getting whatever, and just saying, you know what? Right now, whatever happens, I am worthy, I'm valid, and it doesn't matter what happens. I am just, well, I just am. And um, and in my opinion, that is the key to happiness. I, I would agree with you there. I think that, you know, when you're in that state of completeness, see, most of the time, what drives our, our actions and our mental activity is the attempt to move from the state of incomplete to complete, right? You think about even like, in the process of eating your lunch or something, you know, you, you chew the food, swallow it. And then before you even know it, you're already feeling incomplete again. You need that next bite or that next piece of sugar or that next thing. And then you move from, you know, that to that momentary fleeting sense of completeness. But if you can actually drop into that, give yourself that sense of abundance or completeness in the moment, then what happens is you can still certainly maintain, you know, uh, contact with the real world. You can still set goals for yourself, but our focus starts to shift in a really healthy way from outcome to process, because it's the process that we have control over, not the outcome. Whether this turns out to be the best podcast or not, like we don't really have control over that. The audience will decide, right? But what we do have control over is like how much fun we can have or how engaged we can get, how into it we can get. So, you know, one way to think about it's interesting you mentioned like goals, life goals, plans, and how those can actually induce anxiety. Because if we perceive ourselves as like, if we perceive that the gap between where we are now and where that, where I want to be for that goal or where, where I would need to be to reach that goal, um, the bigger the gap, the more anxiety. But if we think about it in a different way, we can start to transmute that anxiety to excitement. So rather than making the, the you know, die hard fast goal, like, um, okay, I have to have this particular you know, achievement, um, the goal can be, okay, I'm going to, I want to have the best time doing that. You know, I want to have the most fun doing that, or I want to learn the most. So when you transition the goal into growth, like the real goal, you can still have those, uh, you know, performance indicators or those like things that you're reaching for those benchmarks. But if, you know, beyond that, the real goal for us is growth. The real goal is experience. Then it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if you fall down a hundred times a day, that's actually a good thing because it's fostering more growth and it's giving you more material to practice with and to grow from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big proponent of that. I think we need more failure. We need more failure, you know? And, um, and personally like that, that's a message that I needed to hear because I've been, I've been stressed lately, you know, life is stressful and I set these goals and this is just personal, you know, I set goals that are way too high and then I never achieve them. And well, isn't that the key to unhappiness? You know, isn't that saying, okay, you will never be satisfied. And especially when you tie in your, we'll say you tie in your 
value or emotional worth into those goals. You say, you know what, I'm not going to be complete until I achieve that goal, which we almost do subconsciously. Right. And, um, when, when you do that, it's almost, it's almost the key to unhappiness. So I think, um, I think that's a message that everyone needs to hear. I think that's a message that I need to hear. And well, and Aaron's, thank you for coming on. Tell us where we could find you and, um, and give us a little parting message if you have one. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I'll just say, you know, on that last point, one yep. of the things that's that's really uh, helpful and can get the flywheel moving in the opposite direction of building confidence is, um, you know, using the science of small wins. So it's setting really tiny goals, like ridiculous goals. And since you're familiar with like habits and habit design, how to set those up, you know, like one of the classic examples they would give was like, if your goal is to floss your teeth every day, make the goal of flossing one tooth, because probably if you, if you start that, you're going to end up flossing more, but flossing all of them isn't the goal. It's flossing one tooth. And the key is, and the really key, what solidifies everything that we're talking about here, when it comes to changing behavior, whether it's, um, uh, physical behaviors like patterns or your body's behavior is to, when you've made that change, when you've identified, you know, how you actually want to be and made that change on the smallest possible scale is to celebrate that win. So important to celebrate that win and give yourself that little hit of dopamine, because that's, what's going to help to solidify that neural circuitry and get that flywheel moving. So science of small wins could look like, you know, this is why people are such strong proponents of morning routines and making your bed and stuff like that. It's really about, and the military does it for this reason as well. It's about task completion. When we, what really builds confidence and that, you know, uh, sense of autonomy is setting small goals and accomplishing them. What tears down our, our sense of confidence is setting really big goals and failing to accomplish them over and over and over again. Or perhaps it's just a problem of timeline, right? Like it's really hard to move towards something big that's super abstract and doesn't have clear steps. But we know that we we get into these flow states and we do our best and feel our best when we can actually get those small wins on a regular basis. So, you know, whether it's like writing down a simple to-do list or, you know, and crossing things off your list or, you know, doing these little things, just remembering to really focus on and reward yourself for each and every little win, because the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Each and every step is a success. So today I wrote my goals for today and I have one goal and it's take a mindful break at 6.45 PM. That's it. So nice. I have all this stuff going on today. I had one goal. So I'm, I'm, I, I already kind of well, it's a small win, right? I don't know if I, I, I never read that book, but that's, that's sort of what was going through my mind. Tell me what I should do to reward my mindful break. Well, this is where it's going to be, you know, particular to, to you, to what is rewarding to you. So let's say, you know, if it's, if it's going for a walk outside, or if it's like, again, for me, it's something like skateboarding or anything that gives you a really good feeling, essentially. Um, you want to try and stick with, you know, what's called a class one rewards, rewards that both feel good and are good for you. That would be the best. Um, so, you know, being in nature, listening to your favorite playlist, like whatever it might be, um, but whatever gives you that good, satisfying feeling and you connect that feeling, this is what's the important part is that while you're rewarding yourself, you connect it back to the activity that you just did. So you're creating your, this new feedback loop where you're starting to lay down this new circuitry that says, okay, oh, when I, when I achieve these goals that I set for myself, I get this really good rewarding feeling. 
Um, so that's, I'd say the, the two criteria. One is, is it's got to feel good for you. And two, while you're doing it, link it back to the thing that you just did. All right. That means I'm playing some basketball today. There you go. You heard nice. it here first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ben Ahrens, thank you for yeah, coming man. on. Let everybody know where they could find you. Sure. So yeah, best place to find me or keep up with me is at uh, reorigin.com. That's re-origin.com and uh, reorigin underscore official on social media. And that's where we have brain training programs, neuroplasticity-based programs for anxiety, depression, chronic conditions as well, like what I went through. Um, and yeah, people can learn how to how to apply this stuff and meet with others virtually who are um, going through the same process. Yeah, and I'm highly recommending this. Uh, everybody check out his courses. And I'm definitely, you also have a community-based platform Correct. What Correct. is that? Yeah. So the community is really, you know, it's, I like to say, this is the place that I wished I had when I was going through my own healing and recovery journey um, because of that kind of nature of it, that, you know, what really stuck out during this interview was what you had pulled out that it's not about fighting the condition, but moving toward the solution, or it's, you know, it's about surrendering the battle in order to win the war. This is something that I learned when I was going through my own, you know, healing and recovery is that there were support groups out there for it, but a lot of them were very focused on fighting against the condition instead of really focusing on the solution. So the community at reorigin is a community of people who are using these brain retraining techniques um, in the way that we're describing them here, but that are really committed to and consciously engaged in moving toward that bright future that they're creating for themselves, as opposed to complaining about the condition and fighting it about it, because we know that that keeps that um, negative circuitry going. So yes. this is really about getting out of that for people that want to really, you know, move forward from it. Um, knowing that everyone else in the community is, you know, understanding they've been there themselves, um, but they're absolutely committed to, um, to moving onto that, you know, brighter and better way of being. Yes. There's nothing noble about saying, hi, my name is Jim and I'm out and I'm an alcoholic. There's <laughs> nothing noble about saying that. And uh, where can we find this? So I will have all this in the description below, by the way. Yeah, this is also on on the site. So from uh, reorigin.com, they can go to the um, course page, which they'll see there's a a button from it on the homepage. And uh, that just gives you a description of what's in the community. We also have, um, it's accompanied by weekly coaching calls. So weekly Zoom calls that are group coaching where the members of the community all jump on together, support each other, you know, talk about these, these practices, how they're using them and applying them, how they're getting results from them and just all keep moving forward together. Awesome. Awesome. I'm recommending this to my friends and family because my friends and family also struggle with chronic illness. So thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Nick Lugo Show with Ben Ahrens. To support this podcast, please give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and well subscribe to my YouTube channel. And so I'll finally leave you with a quote by Jim Quick, expert on habit transformation. First, you create your habits, then your habits create you. Think about how deep that quote goes. Thank you, and I hope to see you next time.